0: there and welcome to another edition of the 1% Better podcast with your host Rob O'Donoghue. Hello there, welcome to another episode of the 1% Better podcast and I'm releasing this again around Christmas, probably the third or maybe fourth I release around this time of the year. Um, A bit more time on my hands so really wanted to do a podcast talking about books that I read in 2018 So let me just be clear, the majority of these have been released before 2018, I've just got round to reading them this year, probably through recommendations from the podcast, guests or through friends or or just some that have been gifted or or lent to me and decided to narrow it down, Uh, 10 mightn't seem that narrow but um, these were 10 that have had an impact on me that I really enjoyed, that have helped me improve in some areas, given me ideas to focus on to to make some improvements in my life in 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 different areas and thought it might be of value to you to share them um and see if you get something out of it as well. All 10 are on my books page on the website, so if you were interested you could click on that and purchase it through Amazon there or just get them in your local bookstore and uh, yeah, they're not in any particular order other than I think close to the order I read them in. They're definitely all worth checking out and I hope you enjoy it. First time doing this type of podcast, as I said, let me know how it goes and feedback, ideas, suggestions for books for 2019 very welcome as well i have uh, a list already but that list is always growing and if there's one or two you think that should be very high up on it let me know i'd love to hear from you enjoy this 10 book review podcast and have a great rest of day week and happy new year if uh, if it's around that time good luck and enjoy okay so number one book one that i'm putting out is probably no surprise to anyone that's listened to the podcast this year or any of the little clips i've done um or even wrote some articles that touched on this it is a book by Susan Cain and it's called Quiet The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking I read this one at the start of the year and it had a massive impact on me and it's one I've kind of looked back on now and again during the year and will continue to do so it's been great I've actually been able to connect with Susan uh, over Twitter or LinkedIn and um you know at some point it'd be amazing to have her on the podcast but what i loved about the book and continue to like about it is that it's full of stories from her own experience and from the interviews she's done putting it together but it's backed up by a lot of scientific data that uh, goes into the details around what it is to be an introvert and also talks about extroversion and and even mentions the somewhere in between the ambivert uh, towards the end i, I seem to recall because I, I think it's a word that became clear to me um as i uh, did a bit more research into the whole area yeah it's definitely one i wanted to start the recommendations with for folks that have got out over the course of the year that i talked with that have come back to me they were in a similar vain very impressed uh if there were introverts themselves they could totally relate to a lot of the content uh susan certainly goes into details around presentations as well which uh can scare the hell out of a lot of people um certainly the case for introverts and it's the one i wanted to start with so i said i'd try and maybe pick out a little passage and read that see how that goes with uh with this so introverts This inclination to change ahead is not only a hedge against risk it also pays off on intellectual tasks. Here are some of the things we know about the relative performance of introverts and extroverts at complex problem solving. Extroverts get better grades than introverts during elementary school but introverts outperform extroverts in high school and college. At the university level introversion predicts academic performance better than cognitive ability one study tested 141 college students knowledge of 20 different subjects from art to astronomy to statistics and found that introverts knew more than extroverts about every single one of them introverts receive disproportionate number of graduate degrees national merit scholarship finalist positions obviously that's in the us and pi beta kepa keys don't know what that is but uh, probably something important they outperform extroverts on the watson glacier critical thinking appraisal test an assessment of critical thinking widely used by businesses for hiring and promotion they've shown to excel at something psychologists call insightful problem solving and the question is why introverts are not smarter than extroverts according to IQ scores the two types are equally intelligent and on many kinds of tasks particularly those performed under time or social pressure or involving multitasking multitasking extroverts do better extroverts are better than introverts at handling information overload. Introverts reflectiveness uses a lot of cognitive capacity according to Joseph Newman. On any given task he says if we have a hundred percent cognitive capacity an introvert may have only 75 percent on task and 25 percent off task whereas an extrovert may have 90 percent on task. This is Because most tasks are goal directed. Extroverts appear to allocate most of their cognitive capacity to the goal at hand, while introverts use up capacity by monitoring how the task is going. So, look, that's just a little snippet of one of the chapters uh, talking a bit about extroverts, introverts. It is highly recommended. I can't say too much more about it. Hopefully, you check that one out. And that's book number one. Okay, book number two. So here's just a little piece, a page actually, from book number two. It's entitled, What I Know, and here it is. There's a secret that real writers know that wannabe writers don't. And the secret is this. It's not the writing part that's hard. What's hard is sitting down to write. What keeps us from sitting down is resistance. So that's a little piece from a book called The War of Art. Break through the blocks and win your inner creative battles. It's written by a guy called Stephen Pressfield, and I got this at the start of last year as well. One of the goals I had for this year was to do a lot more writing. Um, It's something that scares me a little, uh, something I wouldn't consider myself to be great at. As a result, that's probably one of the reasons why I didn't do so much of it. Uh, That's where, I guess, the resistance piece came in. I was listening to a podcast around this time last year, and they were talking about creative endeavours, not just writing it could be anything and this was recommended as a small little handbook that you could use dip in and out of and hopefully get some inspiration from and help you break through some of those blocks some of those resistance and he does talk about the different types of resistance there is so many reasons not to sit down and write or not to do that 5k or paint that image that's in your mind or wh- whatever it is so i thought this would be useful for me as i try to write more this year and it certainly was i, I did a, a lot of writing every day earlier in the year i had a monthly goal to to write for 45 minutes every day and did a lot of that and some of the stuff might never come out might just be for myself but it certainly helped me get into more of a rhythm i'm by no means uh an expert now at all but this book uh, certainly helped me overcome that resistance one other piece that always sticks out from from reading it I can't find the page right now but it was you know sitting down to write you might feel like you have written for 45 minutes and it's rubbish but that's almost essential that's necessary to get to the good stuff so if you're writing something it's better sometimes just coming out and getting the bad pieces of text out that make no sense um once you do that maybe shortly afterwards the uh the real insightful stuff comes so i would highly recommend that one stephen pressfield he has a number of other books as i may- might have just mentioned at the start but this one the war of art uh certainly helped me this year and continues to help me when i put out something i'd like to do like even this podcast you know it's it's around books for the year um you know i'm resisting doing it a little bit, uh, but now I'm actually doing it, and this sort of book has been helpful to push me forward. So there you go. Number two, the war of art. Okay. So number three, and there is a this isn't on purpose, but there seems to be a lot of books out there that are the art of or the war of or or art is mentioned uh a few times, probably one or two more to come. But this one is called The Art of Living the classical manual on virtue happiness and effectiveness and it's uh, a new interpretation of epictetus's writings from a couple of uh, millennium ago i suppose or millennia ago and it's uh, written by a lady called Sharon LaBelle. This was gifted to me, uh, or lent to me maybe is a better word. Uh, Nile, I promise I will give it back, but as of now I still have it in my hands. And it's a bit like the last one in a way that it is a short book. It's Each each page has a, a couple of paragraphs on it with a point to to, to make or, or a bit of wisdom to share. And it is certainly one that, you can pick up and and dip in and dip out of uh, i think i read it back to back very quickly but since i have maybe tried to read a page a day uh, every now and again just to take something out of it so if you're familiar with epictetus or marcus aurelius and this movement around stoicism uh, i think tim first talks a lot about it stoic philosophy um this is kind of new interpretations of that So let me just read a little bit from the the foreword. Epictetus believed that the primary job of philosophy is to help ordinary people effectively meet the everyday challenges of daily life and to deal with life's inevitable major losses, disappointments and griefs. His was a moral teaching, stripped of sentimentality, piousness and metaphysical mumbo-jumbo. What remains is the West's finest and best primer for living the best possible life while many readers have turned to eastern sources for non-secretarian spiritual guidance the west has had a vital if overlooked classic treasury of such helpful action wisdom all along as was his teachings his scriptures or whatever you want to call his uh, philosophies came out around the same time as buddhism and they obviously wouldn't have known about each other that much at the time Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching as well Uh, there's been comparisons to these and the art of living is pretty much a philosophy of the same ilk but more of a western view so that's kind of a little bit about it Uh, let me just jump to to one page here that, that stood out for me when I was flicking back through it so it's titled events don't hurt us but our views of them can Things themselves don't hurt us or hinder us, nor do other people. How we view these things is another matter. It is our attitudes and reactions that give us trouble. Therefore, even death is no big deal in and of itself. It is our notion of death, our idea that it is terrible, that terrifies us. There are so many different ways to think about death, scrutinize your notions about death and everything else are they really true are they doing you any good don't dread death or pain dread the fear of death or pain we cannot choose our external circumstances but we can always choose how we respond to them and i think i read that one myself at a time when i was you know some something had happened and you you probably jump into modes of blaming other people or, or events happening ultimately it's how you control your own feelings how you react to that uh, mindfulness meditation can be tied into a lot of uh, this ability to be non-reactive and ungrasping. Um and that's what struck a chord for me when i read that so that's just one of those pages there's up oh there's about 120 or 30 there's so many really cool ones i just flicked past one called the power of habit there which i totally believe in uh, the power of doing things on a daily basis to get a little bit better but yeah that's the art of living hopefully that gives you a little taste or it's a small book uh, but lots of value in it okay so up to book number four it was a number one new york times bestseller it is called switch how to change things when change is hard and it is by chip heath and dan heath Uh, also known as the heath brothers and it's all as it says it's all about change it can be changing yourself changing your team changing your organization and as many people will know this is not easy probably changing yourself can be very very difficult never mind uh, changing the direction of of a group of a team of an organization and these guys definitely have done an awful lot of research uh, from a psychological perspective and it comes out in the book. It's a very, very cool and interesting read with lots of useful information that uh, you you can take on board and you can put, put some plans in place to, to talk about change. They reference change from a everybody's made up of an emotional side and a rational side and to get to where you want to go to you kind of have to manage both of those independently and interdependently. You've got to connect with both. That is the obviously the hard part. They talk about the rational side. They call it the rider and an emotional side is the elephant. So the rider is on the elephant and you have to manage the two together. And they really do go into detail on, on how you do that. They talk about directing the rider, motivating the elephant and then shaping the path. When I read this at the time i was i think I was writing an article about a goal setting, and you might be familiar with smart goals, which are specific actionable measurable realistic time bound I think is the acronym they they work without doubt, but in many cases, they don't really talk about the emotional part of the goal and really tapping into that motivating factor of what will get you to where you want to go to, and that's the Motivating the elephant part that uh, these guys talk about, tapping into the emotions. Let me just uh, read one little piece of it around big change. So here's an example from the book. Big change can happen. Don Berwick and his team catalyzed a change that saved 100,000 lives. Yet Berwick himself wielded no power. He couldn't change the law. He couldn't fire hospital leaders who didn't agree with him. He couldn't pay bonuses to hospitals that didn't accept his proposals. Berwick had the same tools the rest of us have. First, he dictated his audience's rider. The destination was crystal clear. Some is not a number. Soon is not a time. Here's the number. 100,000. Here's the time. June 14th, 2006, 9am. But that wasn't enough. He had to help hospitals figure out how to get there. And he couldn't simply say try harder so he proposed six specific interventions such as elevating the heads of patients on ventilators that were known to save lives by staying laser focused on these six interventions berwick made sure not to exhaust the riders of his audience with endless behavioral changes, because behavioral changes can be difficult. Second, he motivated his audience's elephants, which is the the motivational emotional part. He made them feel the need for change. Many of the people in the audience already knew the facts, but knowing was not enough. Berwick had to get beyond knowing, so he brought his audience face to face with the mother of a girl who'd been killed by a medical error. Quote, I know that if this campaign had been in place four or five years ago that Josie would be fine, end quote. Berwick was also careful to motivate the people who hadn't been in the room for his presentation. He didn't challenge people to overhaul medicine or bring TQM or total quality management to healthcare. He challenged them to save 100,000 lives. That speaks to anyone's elephant. So that's just a little bit from it. There's a third part, but maybe if you check it out, you will uh, you'll enjoy it. So again, it's uh, all about change. For me, a lot of things that I focus on is figuring out where you want to go to, or figuring out your values and your purpose. And once you have a clear view of that, then you can probably plot your plan, uh, where you want to get to, your goal, how do you want to get there, and that's where the the real change happens. That's the I suppose the rider part and the elephant. Uh, Is more around the purpose piece. And this book is very useful for that. But I would recommend it. It's a good one, and not only for your personal development, but within your team, within your organization. On to number five, book number five. So I'm just reading a little bit of a post on Inc.com. It starts with Steve Jobs planned every detail of his own memorial service held at Stanford University in October. 2011, including the brown box each attendee received as a farewell gift. One of these attendees was Mark Beanhoff, CEO of Salesforce.com, and two years later, at a TechCrunch Disrupt conference, he recounted his feelings at the moment when he opened the box. This is going to be good, he recalled. I knew this was a decision Steve made, and whatever it was, it was the last thing he wanted us all to think about. The box contained the book autobiography of a yogi by paramahansa yogananda hope i got that right and Beanhoff continued yogananda had his book on self-realization steve's last message to us was that here is yogananda's book actualize yourself so when uh, this is me talking again so when i read that or heard about it on an interview my interest was very much piqued uh, around this book think i had heard of it before but never really gave it that much focus and as someone who has been developing a bit of a yoga practice over the last 12 months uh, doing Bikram yoga on a regular enough basis but maybe more so meditation and mindfulness practice over the last few years this was something I really wanted to dig into learn more about and hear and read what this story was, was all about and what the great steve jobs found so fascinating and many many more uh, like him over the years as well to be honest i absolutely enjoyed it. Uh, it it is a difficult read at some points there's a lot of i guess sanskrit words in there um, he is obviously coming from india and his story can be very difficult to completely buy into the autobiography as as it says it's it's his own story and he talks about gurus saints reincarnation wow yogis science miracles so many other fantastic things but in, in a strange way you do want to believe it it's fact in in lots of ways there's there's obviously factual evidence of him being in certain places at certain times he brought yoga effectively to the u.s and became very very popular over there during his uh his time there and without doubt it was uh like they say you know it's a it's a rare read and one that many many people have used and referenced to and really got familiar with over the years and for me it was one that i'm delighted i read this year i think it's about 560 pages and it can you know it can take time it's something you would probably need to stick with but if you're fascinated about self-actualization understanding yourself and learning more about the world of yoga and the Kind of idea of a guru and the powers that these guys or girls may have had uh over time or still have it's worth worth reading w- without a doubt so I, I would that's why i'm putting it into the into the list for for the year let me just finish by reading piece that's in the introduction it's from a dr binye r n senator former ambassador of india to the united states this kind of sums Yogananda up. The experience of meeting Paramahansa Yogananda is etched in my memory as one of the unforgettable events of my life. As I looked into his face, my eyes were almost dazzled by a radiance, a light of spirituality that literally shone from him. His infinite gentleness, his gracious kindness enveloped me like warm sunshine. I could see that his understanding and insight extended to the most mundane of problems, even though he was a man of spirit. In him, I found a true ambassador of India, carrying and spreading the essence of India's ancient wisdom to the world. That's quite a an intro, quite a piece that uh, was left and that's part of the book. He does talk during the book about his engagements and meetings with gandhi uh which is fascinating and he he goes on multiple adventures across europe um and across the us so yeah it's one that I, I would recommend it's a good long read and stick with it and maybe take some notes as you go that that stand out but um yeah it makes it into the list all right the next one in the list number six is called the inner edge and subtitle effective spirituality in life and work and it's by Richard A. Wiedemeyer and Ronald W. Ju. I hope I pronounced those somewhat close to um, what it should be so I was thinking back when I uh, discovered this I think it was 2017 but didn't really read it until this year um, it may have been a, a book recommended during the coaching diploma I did or somebody that I had talked to in and around then mentioned that it was on some reading list somewhere it's a book from 2002 and as you'll probably gather so far many of these books are not 2018 books but just happened to be ones I stumbled across this year and it talks about obviously spirituality, the inner edge so if you're thinking this is another deep dive within looking inward trying to figure yourself out the whole concept of knowing thyself certainly is uh, in play here And it mentions this term called pragmatic spirituality. Let me just read a little bit of uh, the first introduction page. The inner edge is grounded on a concept we call pragmatic spirituality. This is not connected with any religious belief or practice, but is related to the universal sense of spirituality as seeking. Seeking to satisfy a hunger or to find meaning or to discover one's fullest potential. The objective of Pragmatic Spirituality, P.S., is to achieve enhanced authenticity and appropriateness in everything you do while accessing resources and capabilities beyond the limits of your rational mind, no matter what your belief system or religion may be or may not be. In developing the concept of Pragmatic Spirituality, we have drawn upon Eastern practices, psychology, left brain, right brain theory, and other means through which people have accessed the potential within themselves. We have also drawn from our own personal and professional experience over the years. That's obviously the authors. So if you're interested in intuition, understanding maybe a little bit more about yourself and why you're making certain decisions, this one is for you. It it deep dives into the pragmatic spirituality from a personal level, but it also tries to go into a more organizational level or a workplace level and see how that would work in there it does pose the question what is spirituality and business and what are the links between the two yeah definitely worth checking it out Uh, there's there's processes in it there is tools that you can take on board and test out it is again a, a deep dive but an area of fascination for me um anything that i can read that helps me understand why i act the way I do sometimes or why I feel the way I do sometimes is helpful gives another perspective on it there's a foreword from the Dalai Lama as well which uh, adds some credibility to it I would say and yeah that's the inner edge worth checking out book seven is uh, slightly different again as I said earlier on when I talked about the book War of Art uh, this year I've been trying to write a little bit more and I've always felt that my grasp of the English language to speak it is probably okay. But to write it, I've never been fully confident that I was creating correct sentences using commas or semicolons appropriately or always appropriately. And yeah, if if it wasn't for Grammarly or, or some sort of um, grammatical correction tool in my word uh processing applications it probably would stand out uh, a little bit more my own typos are, are terrible but um that's that's another thing so i i picked up a book at the start of the year called the 25 rules of grammar the essential guide to good english joseph piercy is the the guy that wrote it um and again it's one i just kind of flicked through over the course of the year and check into when i am trying to understand of a sentence that I'm I looking to put together or when to use the appropriate comma, semicolon and specific punctuation. Why Why probably am I not as comfortable or, or confident with it? I would probably put it back to in my early years in school, not being the most attentive student. Uh, my My passion for learning, I think, really only happened or started to explode from the the uh, mid-teens and before that probably not so much focused on uh, what I probably could have been but that's okay um, things happen at the right time so so this one helps me understand different uses of grammar in different contexts and it's one that I probably continue to use ongoing it may, may be of interest to you it's just the one I found there's probably better ones out there But I think if you're passionate about writing and looking to improve in that area, getting the grammar right uh, is good. As you might see, if you follow Twitter, presidents of certain parts of the world don't seem to know their grammar that well either. Uh, Maybe they could pick it up for Christmas or you could um, send it to uh, somebody for a New Year's present that you think could um, write that a little bit better uh, and, and a little bit more punctual or structured perhaps. Book number eight is called The Fifth Discipline, The Art and Practice of the Learning Organization by Peter M. Singa. And this one, I think, was originally published around 1990 and obviously have had numerous updates. I think the one I'm looking at here had an extra hundred pages, sometime published probably in the last five or six years. And as it says, it's it's all about organizations and how they can grow and develop um, based on five core components um, Senga had said he believes that the five component technologies uh, that are apparent that, are, that he goes into detail on are converging to innovate learning organizations the five components are systems thinking personal mastery mental models building a shared vision and team learning and it's really how all of these components work together to create a system and help an organization thrive or or grow i think one of the things people might get caught up on is when you think of a system you might think of a computer system and that the complexity therein when when senga gives examples he talks about maybe just breaking it down more to a, a personal level and think of your family as a system and how that interacts how complex that can be how many people are working together to solve problems um and create solutions uh, in that kind of system environment i remember i was reading this i think i was in in india at one point during this book and i was uh getting a taxi to and from the office and the, the craziness of the traffic was was scary and but it worked, and I was wondering what the hell was it that was making that work, and that's kind of this organized chaos. Uh, and I think it, at at the time I was reading a chapter from the book, and it just made sense in that there's a system there uh, of of traffic in in what would appear to be very chaotic constructs, but it still works, and there's similar examples like that throughout the the book. As Sengith just says towards the end of chapter one, this book is for learners, especially those of us interested in the art and practice of collective learning. For managers, this book should help in identifying the specific practices, skills and disciplines that can make building learning organizations less of an occult art. For parents, this book should help in letting our children be our teachers as well as we are theirs for they have as much to teach us about learning a new way of life as we do them. And for citizens, the dialogue about why contemporary organisations are not especially good learners and about what is required to build learning organisations reveals some of the tools needed by communities and societies if they're to become more adept learners. It's I know when I read it, I was blown away by some of the examples, some of the the detail. It seems to have stood the test of time over the last 25 years, I suppose, when this was written first. It was pre-internet, but it is still one that I hear recommended and referenced a lot. Um, and it was one I really enjoyed, so I said I'd put it into the, to the list. All right, we're nearly there. Just two to go, and hopefully you're, you're enjoying it. Hopefully you're writing down some notes, and maybe you might read some of these in 2019. So number nine is one that was recommended on the podcast uh, probably two or three times over the the two years or so uh, and i eventually got around to purchasing and reading it this year it had been on my radar for a while it is called the art of happiness another art of but the art of happiness a handbook for living is from the holiness or his holiness the dalai lama and howard c cutler who pretty much wrote the book so if, if you're familiar with the Dalai Lama if you know about his story if you know about what he stands for you'll have a good understanding of what this book is about if not it's it's one that I would absolutely recommend you get into and and read happiness is the ultimate I think from the uh, perspective of the Dalai Lama everything that you can do can lead you towards happiness in his eyes and he goes into lots of detail in the book on how we have a right to happiness how we can tap into gaining that happiness training the mind for happiness so meditation and mindfulness and practices to be more in the moment to be less striving to be more present definitely come up during this and and for me that that has been the game changer over the last few years don't get me wrong still have crap and tough and horrible days but much in more infrequent and i put a lot of that down to uh just being a bit more aware of what you're thinking and feeling and most of the time knowing that it's crazy and a lot of it isn't real and and won't have uh, any ultimate consequences because it won't happen i think uh, this book touches on a lot of that the piece i just wanted to touch on that has been very stand out for me in the chapter called overcoming obstacles dealing with anxiety and building self-esteem the dalai lama is asked how does he does he get anxious does he get stressed and how does he deal with it he has a few different examples of how he um, manages to keep that in check, and like everybody, he does experience it. Even he does. For somebody who could spend hours and days just being it, it still comes up for him. And the the interesting one that I picked out was when he was asked about it and how he deals with presenting in front of thousands of people sometimes. And knowing that they're all there for the same reason, to try and get some sort of enlightenment or, or guidance. The question put to him is, so how do you personally deal with that kind of anxiety? So her- here's where it starts. I think that even these days, just before a public talk or teachings are about to start, I always feel a little bit of anxiety. So some of my attendants usually say, if that's the case, then why do you accept the invitation and give teachings in the first place? He laughed again. So how do you personally deal with that kind of anxiety? I asked. With a querulous and unaffected tone in his voice he said quietly. I don't know. He paused and we sat in silence for a long time as once again he seemed to carefully consider and reflect. At last he said I think having proper motivation and honesty are the keys to overcoming these kinds of fears and anxiety. So if I am anxious about giving a talk I'll remind myself that the, that the main reason, the main aim of giving this lecture is to be of at least some benefit to the people, not of showing off my knowledge. So, those points which I know I'll explain, those points which I do not properly understand, then it doesn't matter. I just say, for me, this is difficult. There's no reason to hide or pretend. From that standpoint, with that motivation, I don't have to worry about appearing foolish or care about what others think of me. So, I found that sincere motivation acts as an antidote to fear and anxiety and that's something i've personally used when i've been presenting and doing talks and even doing this if i feel that one or two people get something from it that makes me feel much more comfortable knowing that that smaller audience might take something from it helps rather than expecting that's going to change everybody's lives and that just builds up too much anxiety and hope and can be deflating if it doesn't have the desired request so or the desired effect even so yeah that's the art of happiness number nine definitely worth checking out having on your bookshelf and certainly helped uh, me this year okay finally number 10 is a book that i'm currently reading nearly finished Uh, i'm kind of reading a couple of books in parallel and just again these are not in any order uh from good to bad or best to least best and they're just in the order i think that i probably have read them in more than anything and this one is called emotional agility get unstuck embrace change and thrive in work and life and it's written by susan david phd I had the absolute pleasure of meeting susan in person when she was in cork in november uh, she did a master class at the opening of the new imi building in, in in the keys in cork and yeah it was a real rare treat a real great opportunity to meet somebody of susan's uh, stature and knowledge in the area of emotional intelligence the, the area that i'm probably most passionate about in, in the last few years um And I managed to chat to her very briefly on on her break. uh, And I was probably coming across as a bit of a a fan boy, I think is the term. But I didn't really care because it was uh, it was cool to to meet her in person. And it was a book I was aware of and certainly one that I had um, on the, the long list. But thankfully, I got to meet her and got a copy and have been enjoying it ever since. So what is emotional agility? Let me just give you a quote or a piece from the book. Emotional agility is a process that allows you to be in the moment changing or maintaining your behaviors to live in ways that align with your intentions and values this process or that process isn't about ignoring difficult emotions and thoughts it's about holding those emotions and thoughts loosely facing them courageously and compassionately and then moving past them to make big things happen in your life there's four main movements that you would put under the umbrella of emotional agility showing up is one stepping out walking your why and moving on and in the book susan goes into detail on on each of those and as i said so far i've, I've really been enjoying the read one standout quote from the presentation that susan gave was when she talks about mindfulness and again going back to that definition there you know being present in the moment is all about being mindful being aware of what's going on right now and not catching it not allowing that feeling or thought carry you off to a negative place uh, because a lot of the time it does uh, but realistically it's not uh, not real but susan mentioned this whole movement around mindfulness and she said something funny that stuck with me to say the buzz of m- mindfulness have has been growing over the last few years and, and people who are already crazy busy now have to do mindfulness. Now they have to take this extra thing on that was only going to add to their day and make them even more stressed, which which I can see. I can definitely see people thinking, oh, this is the solution, but how am I going to fit that in potentially to my already crazy day? And it's not about that. It's uh, It's something you can factor in, but it's not to be looked upon as uh, this extra thing you can do. Um, and as many proverbs or sayings go, the, the more you practice mindfulness, the more kind of time and return on investment you get from it. So that was uh, emotional agility. Susan David, brilliant read so far, another number one Wall Street Journal uh, bestseller and um, certainly in the area of emotional intelligence, I think it's uh, it's a great read. So, guys and girls, that is the ten books that uh, I read this year that I you know, put on a list and wanted to share a little bit more about them and see if it's something that, or if some of them are ones that you'd like to to check out as well. As I look back on it, the themes that seem to emerge is organizational change, personal change and growth, emotional intelligence, maybe as a foundation to a lot of it, knowing yourself well. Will allow you to to change, to grow, to help others around you grow and develop, using meditation and mindfulness as a as a tool there to allow you to to make that change, not to be overwhelmed. Uh, there's certainly a creative element to some of those books to inspire you to take on that extra challenge or that new project that you'd like to dip into. Uh, for me, it was writing, but it's podcasting, it's whatever, it's video. Um, and there's kind of touching on physical mental emotional and even spiritual well-being weaving in through a lot of uh, those books Um, and i guess that gives a good sense of where i'm at and what i'm interested in uh, currently maybe it's an exercise of just looking back at the books you've read yourself this year seeing is there a pattern across them is there a, a, a topic or a theme jumping out i do often get teased to say have i ever read a fiction book would i ever consider not reading a self-help or a personal development book I, I read autobiographies obviously there's some there yeah I, th- I think it's whatever you enjoy whatever gets your juices flowing and gets you alive and makes you feel awake and that's for me the books that i mentioned there and uh, get a good buzz out of reading them learning something taking notes and Uh, hopefully putting um some of that into practice because ultimately you know take action to put your practice down get get uh get that change moving takes discipline and you need your focus and and practice to, to, to help you get there so some some didn't make the cut i was reading sapiens for the last few weeks and that's an amazing book but probably on most people's lists already i have started another book called mindful walking with hugh donovan i'm going to be interviewing him in the new year so that's probably one that'll be on the list next year but reading's great Uh, this year i suppose last year i did a lot of audible listening to books and found that good but there's no substitute for physically just getting a book and, and reading it i think anyway so look hopefully that went down well i've never done one of these before love to hear your feedback anyone stand out anyone that you think should be on my list for the coming year that i could read and yeah hopefully it's a a one percent better podcast around books that has been of value to you not sure what date this is coming out yet but whenever you listen to it i hope you're in a good place i hope you enjoyed it and best of luck to you and yours in 2019 thanks so much and good luck.